It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, as always, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody, in the front row. I'm your host, Mike Vaccaro. Behind the scenes, as always, our creator, producer, and director, J.R. Quitman. Up to episode number 21. For that, we go back to our UNCW roots. One of the all-time great basketball players here in Wilmington, it is Brian Rousam. Not only a great here, spent time in the NBA on the original Charlotte Hornets rosters for a couple of years before going overseas. Now an accomplished coach overseas as well. What an incredible story and some big battles he talks about with the Admiral David Robinson, his time with Navy against UNCW in the old CAA. Great stories to come. Don't miss it. It is episode number 21 with Brian Rousam in the front row with Mike Vicaro. Well, Brian, uh, always great to, to spend some time with you. We appreciate you taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to talk to us here today. Uh, a UNCW great, a legend here in Wilmington where I'm the radio announcer, and uh, it's great to catch up with you once again. Mike, I'm glad to be here, and uh, thank you guys for thinking of me. Um, <laughs> I think of Wilmington very fondly, but and so whenever anybody remembers me, I'm always proud of that. <laughs> well, we certainly do. Uh, you're, you're the very first retired jersey here. Again, we're going to get to that in, in just a moment. But I, I want to start at the beginning for you. Uh, you grew up, I guess, in Newark, New Jersey, before you moved to the state of North Carolina. What do you remember early on from New Jersey, and, and, and when did you make that transition to the South? Well, we, we actually um, – uh, I was born in Jersey, and I had relatives there. So I would spend summers there. Uh, Asbury Park in that area on the on the water and so forth. I would spend summers there growing up, uh, but I, I basically grew up in Columbia, North Carolina, which is right near the Outer Banks, um, about four hours from Wilmington, and uh, and then ended up going to school there, of course, as well. Uh, that was where uh, Coach Gibson, our former coach at UNCW back in the 80s, discovered me and then uh, eventually offered me a scholarship. But uh, Jersey was was one of those places that I enjoyed going to because it kind of took me from a small town to a bigger area. I was able to see Yankees games and things like that growing up during the summertime. So it kind of helped uh, me to broaden my my thought process on what I could do and what I couldn't do, you know, being from a small town in Columbia, North Carolina. Well, you, you mentioned the Yankees there. Were you playing baseball at the time as well as, as basketball? Were you a multi-sport guy? Well, you know, like, like most kids at that time, you know, you played Little League baseball and things like that. Whatever was in season was what I basically played because, again, it wasn't a whole lot else to do. Uh, you didn't have video games and, and phones and things like we do nowadays. So, you know, back then you kind of played whatever was in season. I wasn't very good at baseball, but I did try to play. <laughs> and I was a baseball fan. You grew to 6'10". When did that happen? And, and did that help you kind of lead to, okay, basketball is going to be my sport here? Yeah, Mike, uh, no doubt about it. And, and, and uh, you know, when I was growing up also, I did play football in high school. I was a quarterback in, at Columbia High School, even though it was a small 1A school. Uh, I was about uh, 6'1 initially my freshman year. And then I grew to 6'6 uh, going into my sophomore year. And once I grew and hit that growth spurt, that's, that kind of told me that I probably need to start focusing more on basketball because I was really tall and skinny. So uh, uh, I 
you know, kind of veered off of playing football and then eventually just started focus on, uh, focusing on basketball at that point. That's a pretty big jump height-wise. Was, was it tough for you to kind of keep up with your body at that time? You know, what's funny about it, Mike, is that I didn't realize how tall I, I had went away for the summer. Uh, came back home and all of my friends kept saying, wow, you've gotten taller, you've gotten taller. I didn't realize it because obviously it's just me. I'm just living. Uh, but everybody else around me noticed it. And so, because uh, I remember as a kid, I always wanted to be six foot five for whatever reason. That sounded like a good height to me, you know. Uh, but then obviously I grew uh, to be even taller than that. And uh, once I did uh, shoot up. I then started thinking that uh, I, I need to just focus on basketball, playing football at 6'6", 170 pounds, soaking wet probably wasn't a good idea. And uh, I even broke my leg playing football my sophomore year play, playing quarterback. And that, again, reminded me that, okay, I, I might need to give this up and just focus on basketball. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that the injuries change a lot of athletes' minds as far as the sports that they're going to play here. Um, when, when did colleges, universities start come calling for you uh, and start recruiting you on the basketball trail? I got my first letter, and that was from UNCW. I got my first letter towards the end of my junior year in high school. Uh, up until then, I hadn't heard from any schools at all. Uh, and again, I went to a 1A school, so, you know, it's a very tiny uh, conference, tiny school. The competition is not all that good. But uh, once I got my first letter from UNCW, I then thought going into my senior year that I would have a chance at that point to maybe go to college and get a scholarship. And that was my whole mission that whole summer leading into my senior year. Yeah, as you said, Mel Gibson, not the actor, the coach, was your coach at the time. He's a guy that transitioned UNCW from what, NAIA to Division One. That's right. What was it like playing for him and you know, getting recruited by him as well? Well, you know, Coach Gibson was um, uh, a very mild-mannered coach, very smart. Um, at that point, when I got to college, he was by far the best coach I had ever worked with. He had played in the NBA. I don't know if you knew that from back in the day. He played with the Lakers. Yep. Went to Western Carolina, was a, a, a fabulous player there. So being coached by him was perfect for me because his background was similar to mine. I think he was from a small town, Cordova, North Carolina. And for Coach Gibson to do what he did as a basketball player to make it to the NBA, he was a backup with Jerry West on those Lakers teams in the 60s. I thought to myself, wow, he would, he, if he can do it, maybe I can do it. You know, he inspired me in a lot of ways. And then his coaching style was kind of hands-on and a little bit more laid back. We had a couple other assistants um, who were a little bit more vocal and, and uh, boisterous, but Coach Gibson was laid back. And that really worked for me because I was coming from an environment where I wasn't yelled at a lot as, uh, with my coaches and so forth. And so I was able to, you know, adapt to Coach Gibson's style. And um, he really helped me a lot. He really did. I owe everything really to him, honestly. <laughs> yeah, he's still around here, still that mild-mannered uh, guy that you remember as a coach. Uh, so, again, that was 1983 to 1987. Uh, four years at UNCW, three years with him, one year with Robert McPherson, who, who took over for him. And also, that was the early days of the CAA, the Colonial Athletic yeah. Association. Back then, it was the ECAC South until right. the uh, conference that was formed in 1985. What, what do you remember about the, the early days of, of the league before it officially became the CAA? 
Yeah, my sophomore year, we were in the ECAC South. Mike, uh, we had just joined that conference. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very, it was my, my first year, obviously, we were independent. We, uh, the team, we were 11 to 17. We went through a lot of transition. When I came as a freshman, we had eight new players. It was a lot of turnover from the year before. Um, and then, so it gave us a, you know, kind of a, a introductory to college basketball. Um, my very first game at UNCW, believe it or not, was against LSU, and they were ranked in the top 20 that particular year. Uh, had a very good team. And then we went to the ECAC South, uh, where we then played Navy and George Mason, James Madison, all those tough Richmond, all those good schools in Virginia. Uh, so it kind of helped us to understand that we, what we were up against and what we had to do to get better. And, uh, but we, we slowly got better year to year. I know I improved a lot from year to year. And uh, eventually my junior year, it, uh, the conference became the Colonial Athletic Association. And, uh, you know, going into that first year of the, the, the CAA, it was one of the better conferences in America. We had David Robinson, uh, Johnny Newman from Richmond, Blue Edwards was there with um, East Carolina, um, uh, um, Sanders, I uh, can't think of his name, uh, George Mason, he was an All-American. Uh, so we, we had some really talented players at the mid-major level at that time. Yeah, people don't realize that, I just said, some some – names there that people eventually watched in the NBA, yourself included. Yep. Got to go back to David Robinson because, uh, unfortunately, I was not around to see those battles, but I, I still hear about them in Trans Coliseum. You and David Robinson, UNCW and Navy, what was it about those two games and those those two opponents and, and you and the Admiral David Robinson? Yeah, I, I tell you what, Mike, uh, my sophomore year when we first played them in the ECAC South, we – I can remember this like it was yesterday. We were driving up to Annapolis and I was looking at the media guide because we hadn't played Navy yet. And I didn't know how good they were or whatever. So I'm looking at the media guide and I see this David Robinson. They had him at six, listed at six foot 11 at that time. He was a sophomore. I was a sophomore. But I'm thinking, OK, he's good, but I got this. You know, I'm coming in confident and everything. And then once we played him that first game up at Navy, I said, OK. I've got to get on my ball. I got to get on the ball here for the next three years because this is going to be my competition. Uh, so basically, it ended up just being one of those rivals where it was great for the league. It was a great one-on-one -on -one rival with me and David, but also for Navy and UNCW. But it, it helped both of us improve, though, as players. I think we got the best out of each other uh, during that time frame. And uh, had he not been in the conference, I, there's no doubt about it, we would have been able to win some of those uh, conference uh, tournaments uh, back in those days. But <clears throat> it did help me to improve and gave me nationwide recognition. And I think that also brought recognition to UNC Wilmington's basketball program as well with us battling it out uh, over those three years. Yeah, Navy was kind of ruling the, the conference at the time, as you said, with him. Also, Vernon Butler, a very big uh, uh, guy and a good rebounder as well. So they, they kind of had their, their twin towers at that time, right? They really did. I told our former point guard, uh, guard Bobby Joe Springer, uh, about a month ago, I said, hey, man, if we would have had Vernon Butler on our team against Navy with David Robinson, I think we would have won. We could have beaten them back then. That's how close we were. Uh, with a lot of those games, uh, it was just a possession or two away from, you know, being different. But uh, those were very good games. And I just know that uh, when we played them, they put us on both both teams, both programs on a national scale. 
you had NBA scouts there at all the games and so forth. So it took UNCW's program from almost an unknown to well-known at that time. Yeah, was that a benefit to you? Again, as you said, NBA scouts there, maybe more so to see David Robinson, but then, hey, they see you and what you can do as well, and maybe that opened up some eyes for, to those guys. It sure did. It, it really did. My, I remember after my junior year, we played them in the uh, CAA tournament semifinals, and we lost by two. I had a pretty good game against Navy that night, uh, and I remember bumping into uh, former Celtics legend and, and Hall of Famer who just passed away recently, Sam Jones. He was scouting for Boston at that time. And I remember bumping into him in the stands uh, before we left uh, uh, to leave the arena that night. And he said, son, you got a chance to make it into the NBA. And that was after my junior year. So that was very inspirational for me, uh, for him, because I knew for him to say that, because I knew that, first of all, they were there scouting. They had seen me play one of my better games against David. And I knew then that I would be on the map. Uh, as far as uh, going into the NBA, going into my senior year that next year, which I was. Well, not just against Navy and David Robinson, but you had some other great showings during your career. Uh, tell me about the Indiana Classic, because you were the, the very first guy that was a non-Indiana player to be named MVP of that Classic. Certainly you did something against the Hoosiers to open people's eyes, even though UNCW didn't win that Classic, but you're the MVP. Yeah, Mike, um, you know, being back in Indiana kind of brings back those memories as well. I was talking to one of my former teammates who lives in Anderson, Indiana, and he wants to go down to Bloomington to a game. Uh, uh, so, and then obviously I haven't been back since the, that uh, tournament back in 86. But yes, you're right. It did bring uh, national exposure to myself and our team again. Um, we were playing in Indiana. I remember the night before we played them, you know, the 1940 championship banner, 1953 championship banner the 76 undefeated Indiana team that won the national championship. And I was just thinking to myself, man, this is where, you know, you kind of can, can make your name, you know? And I remember saying that I wanted to do this for all those smaller schools that don't get this chance. And uh, kind of like the, 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 the line from Hoosiers, uh, you know, I wanted to do it because I came from Columbia, North Carolina, a little small town. Uh, wasn't highly recruited. And I thought that if I can do well on this stage, then it will open some eyes. And that was my determination. I didn't care who we played. I was going to go for it uh, during that tournament. And uh, I also felt like I had to give our team confidence as well because I knew our, our team was underdogs against Indiana, but I felt like if I played well, they would follow my lead. And they certainly did, and we played well. Well, again, playing well was what you did throughout your career. Uh, nine games of 30 or more points. Tell me about the 39-point game that you had, a win against East Carolina back in 1987. What do you remember about that game, and was it one of those times where, you know, you're, you're just on fire, as they say? Yeah, that was it's always a homecoming game for me. Uh, Mike, going back to Eastern North Carolina like that, my family was always able to go to those games. I even had some high school friends that would come up to those games. My high school coaches would come. Uh, plus – uh, honestly, Mike, you know, I wanted to go uh, to East Carolina coming out of high school, but they didn't give me a not even a letter. They didn't give me a look at all coming out of high school, um, you know, whereas UNCW did. So I wanted to take it out on East Carolina every time I got a chance to play against them to show them that they made a mistake. And not only that, add insult to, uh, to, uh, to that was that they had recruited a player from Wilmington named Jack Turnbill who played. 
I think at New Hanover High School, if I'm not mistaken. You know, he was. We came out the same year. He was about the same size as I was, six nine, six ten. Uh, so they chose him over me. So I wanted to make them pay for it every time we played against them. So I would always get up even more so when we played East Carolina. Uh, my senior year, I wanted to go in there and play well. It was one of those games where we were trying to fight for, you know, trying to catch Navy in the conference standings at the time. And uh, for whatever reason, that night I had a really good night. I was confident, and the guys kept feeding me the ball. So I ended up with a career high that night. I'm just mad I couldn't get 40 instead of 39. <laughs> yeah, you get, go for 39. And, you know, folks right now maybe don't realize how big of a rivalry East Carolina was in the league at the time. As you said, I'm sure you had friends that went there. They, they you know, had friends that go to UNCW. How big of a rivalry was it? And, and what were those games and environments like when you played them? Yeah, it was always packed both ways. Uh, whenever we would play them at home, they would have a lot of fans that traveled down from Greenville and vice versa. Uh, the bus trips going to East Carolina, we would take fans from Wilmington that wanted to go with us. Uh, whenever we would stop to eat on the way up there, you know, you could just feel the electricity in the restaurants, how, how hyped everybody was uh, as they got ready for those games. And then, like you said, too, I had friends that were going to East Carolina that I went to high school with and so forth. So I knew that I had to play well there because if not, they were going to let me know about it, you know, uh, down the road. So we we actually played well against them during uh, my time there. I think we lost my first game there my freshman year. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, we won uh, the next three times that we played in Greenville. And then we also beat them down in Wilmington. So we had a lot of success against them uh, during my time frame there, which I'm proud to say uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, Seahawk fans watching this will, will certainly remember those meetings and be uh, proud of that as well. You finish, you know, number one leading scorer, just shy of 2,000 points, over 1,000 rebounds, a top rebounder as well. Could you ever have imagined, as you said, from a small school from the, you know, in the state that, that you wind up as a leading scorer, leading rebounder here at UNCW when your career is all said and done in 1987? No way, Mike. I was just trying to play college basketball. I was the last guy recruited and signed that particular year in 83. In fact, Coach Gibson gave me the scholarship on a stipulation that I would come to summer school leading into my freshman year. So I signed late. I remember towards the end of May. And he said, okay, we got one scholarship left. We'll give it to you on the terms that you come to the second session of summer school leading into that fall semester. And I was kind of glad that he did because it got me a chance to get into at, down to Wilmington to learn the city and campus uh, uh, earlier. Plus, I was able to work out with a former UNCW player by the name of Danny Davis, who is uh, still an agent today. Uh, helping players play professionally overseas. Danny was playing at the time in England, and so he was there all summer long, and he really taught me uh, the proper work ethic. Uh, so we were there lifting weights all summer long. I had never lifted weights, Mike, at all back in high school, never. We had a universal weight machine in our locker room at high school, and I, I was telling one of my friends recently, all we did was sit our underwear on it. You know, when we got dressed in the locker room, we never worked out on it, you know. But Danny showed me the proper way to work out, what it took to be a professional athlete that summer. And that really helped me to get a little bit stronger, gain some weight going into my freshman year. 
Yeah, it seems like a lot of the athletes that, that we talk to, they kind of have that guy that, that was their mentor. Did, did you kind of become that guy for other people as, as you became the older guy on the, on the team? I, I, I tried to. I certainly did. The freshmen that were coming into uh, to the program, I would always try to take them aside and show them, hey, this is what you can do to get better. I showed them where I was uh, as a freshman uh, as compared to my junior senior year. So I did do that because I felt like if they were going to improve as players, obviously it would help us to improve as a team as well. You know, and our mission at that time was against uh, to try to beat Navy and David Robinson. And we knew that we had to have everybody uh, playing well in order to do so. So I definitely try to become a mentor that way. Well, Devontae Kaycock, he's the fifth Seahawk to have his jersey retired, uh, currently playing in the NBA, the G League as well. But you were the very first. Uh, in 1990, you get your jersey retired by UNCW. Tell me about that moment when you found out and, and what it was like that at the game where you had your jersey retired in front of the, the home fans in Trash Coliseum. Yeah, Mike, I was playing with the Hornets at that time. I think we were – we had just come off an all-star break, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so they made the uh, – and I, and I give the Hornets credit to uh, the organization because they allowed me to fly down to Wilmington to, to go to the ceremony. And uh, obviously, you know, words can't describe what happened that night. We have – I had my family there. Uh, they had a, a whole Rousing recognition night that night. I still have some of the programs from that evening and some of the, the video footage from then. Um, like you said, uh, others may have their jerseys retired, but I was the first and, and truly honored to, to be that guy. And uh, coming from where I came from to, to get to that moment, um, it was surreal. It really was. And, and, it's, and as you get older, it becomes even more surreal these days, you know, when I think back on it, you know, uh, from where I came. Uh, a lot of play, you know, a lot of players tend to think that, you know, you were already a good player when you went there and things like that. But I wasn't. I really wasn't. I, again, I was the last player signed that year and uh, nobody knew about me. I was the only player that was on the team that was from a 1A school. So I was just very proud of how I improved over the years. And uh, all of that came from, you know, the, the basketball coaches there at UNCW believing in me and pushing me to do more. And uh, I'll, I'll give myself a little bit of credit, too. I stayed in the gym to try to work out to get better because I knew if I didn't, uh, that big guy up in uh, Navy was going to embarrass me. So I, I try to get better every year. <laughs> yeah, I just say good coaching, you know, good motivation for you from other guys. And, and again, you stuck to it. So uh, you ended up, like I said, uh, number one in scoring, number one in rebounding. You're currently two in scoring. Brett Blizzard took that over and you're, you're three in rebounding. Kaycock is two and Keith Renelman, another great rebounder is, is uh, or uh, Kaycock's one, Renelman's two, you're three. So uh, again, you still left your mark here. Your jersey is up there. So you finish your career. What are you thinking next? Do you, are you thinking, as you said, there were some scouts coming to your games. Did you think you had a chance to get drafted as you, as you were eventually? Yeah, I, I knew I had a good chance to get drafted. Uh, at that time, I was hoping that I could go maybe late first round uh, in the NBA draft because obviously if you get drafted in the first round, your, your contract's guaranteed initially. Um, and uh, so I ended up getting drafted the second round by Indiana. But my thought process and, and you know, in talking to my agent at the time as well, we were, Indiana wasn't even on the radar. It really wasn't. It didn't, you know, and then I look back at it, it makes sense because obviously I played well in the tournament up here and they saw me up, uh, up close here. Uh, but we were thinking in terms of maybe Milwaukee at the time. I, re I remember uh, even the Denver Nuggets and even the Boston Celtics 
uh, Mike, because I had met with those guys, those particular teams and talked to them. And uh, Boston at the time, of course, you know, they were very, very good. So they were always drafted and late in the first round. So I thought maybe I could, you know, go there and be a backup and learn from those guys uh, eventually. So when Indiana called my name, I was really surprised, to be honest with you. Uh, of course, I, again, I go back to the first round. I was disappointed that I wasn't drafted in the first round. Uh, but as it turned out, it probably was, you know, the right move uh, for uh, the NBA teams to pass on me because when I did go to the Pacers, I wasn't as confident as uh, I had been previously, uh, at, you know, in college. Uh, I was still learning a lot, and uh, the Pacers were pretty loaded at the time. They had Wayman Tisdale, uh, who was a number two draft pick in the 85 draft, he was coming off the bench for them. You know, that's how strong they were up front. They had uh, Herb Williams, a veteran player, Steve Stepanovich. Chuck Person was the rookie of the year the year before. So they were really loaded, and I couldn't get a lot of playing time. And quite frankly, Mike, I wasn't ready. I, I, I admit that when I look back at it these days, I, I you know, I didn't go into there with a lot of confidence. Reggie and I came in the same year, Reggie Miller, uh, and he came in talking trash and was confident <laughs> from the very beginning. He really was. The same Reggie that we all grew to know later, he was just like that from day one, talking trash, uh, back, not backing down from anyone. And I would just sit back in awe of him doing that to all these veteran players. So, um, you know, it turned out that Indiana was uh, a, really a blessing in disguise because it taught me what I needed to work on. Uh, when they cut me from uh, Indiana, I was able to go overseas play in France, got a lot more confidence, uh, got stronger, and then came back and played with Charlotte after that. Yeah, I was going to mention you were part of the draft class that included Reggie Miller, so you, you've always got that uh, as well. <laughs> you played for Dr. Jack Ramsey as well, the head coach of the, the Pacers at the time. What was it like playing for him, a legendary coach who eventually you know, won an NBA championship with the Trailblazers? That's right. I remember as a kid watching uh, him coach the Blazers and Bill Walton in that 77 uh, finals, and uh, so I thought it was an honor to play for him. And I'll tell you this, Mike, also, I just told some people here recently in Indiana, uh, Dr. Jack was ahead of, his, of, ahead of his time. He was 63 years old, I think, when I was there as a rookie. But he was really into fitness. And uh, he ran uh, the triathlons and things like that. He did that at age 63. He used to have um, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, energy drinks and things like that at our practices where I never saw that before. Back at UNCW, it was just water and Gatorade, you know. But he had all these nutrients and things like that laid out for us at practice every day. The way that we warmed up and, and things that I used today as a coach, dynamic stretching and things, he was doing that back in the late 80s. And so he was really a fitness buff and really into nutrition and things like that. He had nutritionists to come in and talk to us about our diet. All of that stuff was brand new to me. Because I was one of those guys that, you know, uh, I, I heard about it, uh, taking care of your body and things like that. But, when, you know, when you're 21, 22 in college, it's hard to do that. You know, I was eating at the Bojangles across from UNCW or the Burger King down the street, you know, from UNCW a lot. And uh, when I got to Indiana, I realized, you know what, in order to be a pro and, and take it to a next level, you got to take care of your body uh, both on, on and off the court. Yeah, so, so maybe a shorter stint there, but a meaningful stint for you as a player. And, and it sounds like it, now in your coaching career as well, something that you took away from uh, the late uh, Dr. Jack Ramsey. Absolutely. Um, so you said you went to France, then played there, and then you get the opportunity to come back to the NBA. And it's this, this new team called the Charlotte Hornets. 
I mean, what were you thinking at that time, you know, coming back here, obviously back to your, your home state uh, and this opportunity, how, how big of an opportunity was it for you? I tell you what, Mike, here's the ironic thing about that was that my assistant coach with the Pacers, Dick Harder, became the head coach of the, the Charlotte Hornets. Yeah. So when my agent and I were talking that summer, we, I was a free agent. He said, you know, we were trying to pick out which camp to go to. So he said, well, you know what? I think Charlotte would be a great opportunity for you. Obviously, it's back in the state of North Carolina, but your old assistant coach, Dick Harder, is the new head coach there. I knew that he knew me from being in Indiana. Uh, and he, I, and uh, so we reached out to him. He said, yes, I want you in camp. Come on up. Uh, so we signed, I signed again, was one of the later, uh, one of the last guys to sign to come into camp for the Hornets that summer, uh, that, that fall, but it actually worked out because Dick knew me a little bit. He was patient with me. He saw that I had improved Mike. I had gotten stronger from the year before. And so, uh, I went into camp, a whole new attitude, more confidence. And I was determined to be there because I knew I had a little bit extra pressure on myself just being in my home state as well, you know? coming from UNCW, coming from Columbia, North Carolina. I didn't want to let people down. So I went in hungry that, that uh, fall into a training camp, and it uh, paid off. Yeah, there for two years, the first two years uh, of that team, 1988 to 1990. And how about this for some of your teammates? Muggsy Bogues, Rex Chapman, Dale Curry, Sidney Logue, uh, Kurt Rambis, Kelly Trabuca. I mean, some of the best for, for the Hornets, but, but some great names in the NBA as well. You, you were around a good team, you know, really good teammates here. Absolutely. They, they taught me a lot. And some of those veterans, you know, Kurt Ramos, Kelly Tropilka, you know, I had seen them play in the NBA and in college at Notre Dame. And, and uh, of course, Kurt with the Lakers, Showtime Lakers teams in the 80s. Kurt took me aside when I first came there. He again, I worked out with him in the mornings, you know, before training camp even started. His work ethic was always, uh, you know, top notch. Uh, he taught me so much in practice, uh, how to practice, uh, how to play defense and things like that. Because obviously, you know, Kurt wasn't the greatest athlete in the world, but he was very smart. And he taught me a lot of those things. Um, uh, you know, playing with Muggsy, you know, I seen him in the ACC uh, all those years. And we played against him my senior year at UNCW. Um, uh, Del Curry, you know, I had seen him play at Virginia Tech growing up. Sidney Lowe, I saw him on that national championship team with North Carolina State. So all those guys in some ways felt like family to me because I had seen them play for so long, even before we got all got together. But they were just a very, very bright bunch of uh, players, and we all got along well. And, of course, you know, the love affair with the fans there in Charlotte was amazing. Uh, even still to this day, I have never seen a connection like that uh, between fans and a franchise like it was in Charlotte that first year. Yeah, it seems like that connection has come back with them, the Hornets, once again. When they went to the Bobcats, it was a little different. And, and a, a big splash at that time was was the teal uniforms and the teal color. You know, UNCW is, is teal now. They weren't when you played. But but what was that like, you know, wearing those uniforms and, and making such a splash from that standpoint? Well, I tell you what, Mike, you bring that up, but well, uh, I've got a guy that's making some replicas of my jersey with the Hornets because it's so popular these days. You know? Wow. Those teal colors, I, and I, I got to get you one of these too, Mike. I'll definitely send you one. Awesome. Uh, yeah, people love them, and I still to this day, and of course I'm going to be biased, but I still to this day think those are some of the best-looking uniforms ever. Uh, I know the Hornets have, have changed their uniforms a little bit 
compared to uh, those early years. But those early year uniforms were unique. Uh, they were, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, we were the second biggest seller with our uniforms back then behind the Bulls uh, because everybody loved those unique colors. And then we had the pinstripes. And then, of course, we had the, the pleated shorts uh, that were definitely unique. And, uh, of course, we had the uh, designer, fashion designer, Alexander Julian, who designed our uniforms that first year. They were very unique. And so whenever we would go on the road to New York or L.A., Chicago, we would see fans in the stands with our uniforms and colors on. And, and we thought that was a great thing for a first-year team. You know? So I'm very proud of those uniforms. And I still get people to this day to tell me how beautiful those uniforms are. I think Rex Chapman will post some things sometimes, Muggsy does, where they see our old uniforms and people go crazy over them. They really like them. Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. We would go to the Nets games, not to see the Nets, but to see the opponents. And definitely the Charlotte Hornets was one of the games, one of the opponents we saw back in those days as well. And uh, I think I was a big Rex Chapman guy at the time. I, I, you know, again, that guy could jump out of the, the gym for, for the Hornets. Yes, he could. Yes, he could. I was telling someone recently, I, I've never seen a more athletic two guard than Rex Chapman. I mean, I saw him do some things in practice, Mike, where he would just be under the basket, go up and dunk the ball backwards and just keep on moving like it was nothing, you know. We would all look at each other like, did he just do that? You know, Rex was just, he was a freak of nature. He really was, really was. So two years with the Hornets, played 34 games your first year, 44 with two starts the second year, and, and then you transitioned back uh, overseas. How, how did that take place going back overseas? You know, was it tough to not be on an NBA roster anymore at that time? It, it, it was um, um because going into that third year, I had a non-guaranteed contract. And that was really myself and my agent's uh, mistake because uh, after the first year there, I signed a two-year deal with the Hornets with only the first year being guaranteed. And looking back at it, I should have probably gotten both years guaranteed. So when I went into that third year, uh, I could either go to training camp with a non-guaranteed contract or I had a, a sure deal to go over to Europe at the time. So I actually took the deal to go to Europe because I felt like it would be more job security. I ended up going to Spain, Mike. But then, believe it or not, the Minnesota Timberwolves took me off of waivers. They, um, and, and then I ended up going to camp with the Timberwolves reluctantly because I had already gone to Spain. And uh, so I came back to go to camp with the Timberwolves, ended up getting cut there by Bill Musselman. Uh, I don't think he really gave me a, a fair shake because I was only there for about a week. But I thought at that time I had been a proven NBA player in the league for a couple of years now, had played a lot with the Hornets. And then um, so after I got released there, I ended up trying to find out, figure out which way I was going to go from that standpoint. I ended up going to the CBA, I think, for a year. That was the main minor league then for the NBA. And uh, going, I ended up going to the CBA for a month, I should say. Then I ended up signing a deal to go to France uh, later on that year. And then after that, I just uh, decided that, you know what, I'm just going to continue to uh, finish out my career in Europe. Yeah, I mean, plenty of guys are making good money playing over there, playing every day or playing a, a, a lot. So, you, you, like I said, you started in France, went to Israel, uh, Japan, uh, Manchester, England, where you eventually retired in 1999. What do you remember about those? What, what, what was the best stop? What was maybe the worst stop for you during that time? I will say this. I think uh, overall Israel probably was the, the most fun place I played in because the league was very good and very strong. You had some former NBA players over there that were playing at the time. I remember Purvis Short, 
longtime NBA vet, was playing over there. Buck Johnson, former uh, player for the uh, Houston Rockets, was playing there. Um, let's see. Uh, David Thirdkill, who had played with the Celtics on that 85-86 uh, NBA championship team, he was playing in the league there in Israel. And there were three or four other guys as well. So the league was very strong. But more than that, I, I lived in a town called Eilat, E-I-L-A-T, right on the southern tip of Israel. And it was a resort town. It was right on the beach, Mike. And it was absolutely wonderful because you had great weather there year-round. Tourists would come from Europe to come there to vacation. And uh, I just thought it was paradise. I really did. It was a smaller town, but it was right on the water. Uh, had a great four years there. Everybody treated me like a king there. Uh, we had great fan support. So every year after I would play there, my agent would say, Brian, I think that now's the time to come back. The Washington Bullets are interested in you or someone like that. And I said, nah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here in Israel. I'm fine. You know, I was enjoying it that much. I really was. <laughs> hey, a little piece of heaven there. Almost sounds like Wilmington with the beach and everything else. It kind of brought you back to your Wilmington days. Yes, it really did. It did remind me of Wilmington a lot because it literally was right on the water. And there you had tourists that would come there from all over the uh, from uh, Israel and, and Europe as well. Uh, great year-round weather. I'm a warm weather guy, so the weather was always warm. The people were wonderful there, so it, it really did remind me of Wilmington a lot. How was it, and were you accepted as a former NBA player, or did, did people kind of look you know, sideways at you? What was it like when you were going back and forth and, and going from the NBA to, to playing overseas in these different leagues and different teams? Yeah, I think the NBA actually gave me credibility, you know, when I would go overseas, you know, um, uh, I didn't realize it at the time how big the NBA was globally, because you remember during that time, during the early 90s, that was when the Dream Team played and it gave uh, the NBA even more worldwide recognition. So with me having that NBA tag uh, associated with my name when I would go play with different teams overseas, it gave me a lot more credibility. Uh, instant credibility, whereas some other players may would have to go over there and prove themselves a lot longer. So uh, it really helped me uh, as far as that's concerned. And uh, But also, it, it, in some ways, too, it kind of put a bullseye on my chest as well because that meant the other players were coming at me even more to show me that they could play uh, or that I wasn't all that or whatever. So, you know, uh, it worked out uh, both ways in, in some ways, in some regards. As I mentioned, retired in 1999, uh, playing in Manchester, England. What were you thinking at that point? Obviously, it's it's hard for for athletes, professional athletes, to to step away. Was it hard for you? It it, it wasn't not, not necessarily because um, you know I started having some back issues. I know that I remember uh, very vividly going to practice every day wasn't as fun. It was starting to become more of a job than uh, fun for me. And I thought at that time that, you know, if it's going to be like this, then it's time for me to probably get ready to hang it up and move on to the next phase. Uh, I had already started thinking in terms of maybe helping players to go overseas, kind of like Danny Davis was doing. I was watching him and how he uh, did his uh, job and so forth. So I decided that I would go ahead and shut it down and, and not play and, and not have to go back and forth uh, overseas anymore. I could start my own agency, and I did that for a few years there in Charlotte. And uh, because, again, I wanted to give back to the younger players who were trying to do uh, follow my suit uh, as far as playing, uh, having a playing career. 
you also did some some TV hosting, some some broadcast work in Baltimore. Uh, was that something you enjoyed at the time? I did. I really did like that, Mike. Uh, the media part of it. Uh, it was fun, and it was a lot less pressure as far as having to be in shape to play, and then uh, and a lot less pressure as far as having to get wins and lo- uh, wins uh, as a coach now. You know, so you could just go to the game, analyze it. Um, you know, uh, you were basically doing everything that you did. Uh, as a player, travel-wise and so forth, staying in nice hotels, going to the game, but you didn't have the pressures of winning and losing. And I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from that. Uh, But, you know, uh, and and it gives me more respect for your job because I know that you guys have to know what you're doing. You have to study the game. You have to study players and trends and things like that. So um, uh, it it gave me a a much more greater appreciation to uh, all the media types that are out there today. Now we're not that smart. Don't give us that much credit. <laughs> so, so 2004, you, you start coaching. What, what led to that? Why did you think coaching was going to be, uh, you know, where the next part of your career was going to take you? I, it, it happened uh, as a favor, believe it or not. I had a friend who was um, a friend of in, uh, in Atlanta, went to a – uh, ABA meeting, uh, American Basketball Association Association meeting, and he met a guy that was buying a franchise and put it in, in Charlotte, in Concord, North Carolina, right outside of Charlotte. And he reached out to me and said, Brian, would you like to coach it so that then if you coach it, I can work with the team as well? And I said, okay, well, you know what? I, let me think about it. I thought about it for a month or so. Uh, because initially, my first thinking, Mike, was that having been in pro basketball, that I didn't want to get involved with because of the job security. You know, you're constantly bouncing around from job to job, city to city, having to move, move your family, what have you. Uh, but I did eventually jump into it uh, as a favor to him. And my mindset has always been that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to try to do it at the highest level. I said then that, okay, I'll do this for a year and try to use this as a way to promote myself and prepare myself uh, coaching-wise. So I wanted to learn from, the, you know, basically the grassroots level and then uh, try to work my way up. And uh, that's what I did. I jumped into it at that moment, and I said, I'm going to try to give, you know, give this the best shot I can and hopefully uh, move up. And that's what I've been trying to do or try to do from the very beginning. Well, you certainly have some great success. I mean, it's, it's crazy that you're, you're playing success overseas and that you most enjoyed Israel. As a coach, your best success in the in the Middle East. Uh, you went there in 2008 there for five seasons, 2012-2013 league championships and the, uh, the Eurobasket.com coach of the year as well. What was it about the Middle East? What did you enjoy about that in addition to uh, obviously winning basketball games? Yeah, you know, I was really surprised at the talent level over there, Mike. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I didn't know what to expect. Now, I knew, having been in Israel, that uh, there was talent in the Middle East. And when I got there, I realized, wow, this is going to be a challenge for me. Um, But I, you know, I've never backed down from a challenge. And that goes back to my UNCW days. I always figured that there are certain things that you have to do in basketball in order to to win games. And, you know, one of them is, you know, play good defense, have good team-oriented offense, things like that. Those are just basic fundamentals that I've always tried to carry with me as a player and as a coach now. And uh, so I was able to go over to uh, the Middle East that first year in 2008 and nine. I took a team that had not made the playoffs in the last few years there. My first year there, I took them to the playoffs, 
had a lot of success. So they thought that I was a decent coach and that helped propel my career further. Whereas had I gone there that first year and not done well, I may not have gotten a chance to come back, you know, and uh, continue on from there. So that first year was very important for me. We ended up making the playoffs and lost to the eventual champions in the uh, semifinals. Uh, but it gave me a chance to, um, you know, see players in the Middle East, uh, see the talent there. There was local talent there as well. Um, and uh, so and, and also obviously gave me a chance to work on my coaching um, uh, abilities every day. I was able to study the game, focus more on that, as well as meet a lot of great people and see a lot of absolutely wonderful sights and, and things over in the Middle East uh, also while being there. Yeah, so again, you've done great overseas, Japan in 2014, Indonesia 2018 and 19. Any offers, any opportunities to come back stateside? I know you're doing some of that now, but before that, were any opportunities, even the NBA with your time in the NBA? Did you have opportunities to, to coach in the NBA? No, I, I never did, my, but that was always my goal because I felt like, you know, my path maybe to getting to the NBA might be a little bit different from others. I know that some other coaches have gone overseas first and come back. I know that uh, Scott Skiles did that, my former teammate with the Pacers. Um, a couple other coaches have done that same, uh, have gone that same route. So I just kept thinking that, okay, you know what, I'm just going to keep doing what I do, what I do overseas, hopefully keep winning, and that will maybe resonate with another franchise back in the NBA. Um, and if it doesn't, then I can still obviously make a, a nice career out of it. I've always enjoyed traveling abroad seeing different countries, experiencing different cultures and so forth. So um, I've always said that if, if I didn't make it to the NBA, then that's no problem. I always liked the idea of coaching professionally more so than college, Mike, only because coaching professionally is all about basketball. Yeah. You know, in college, you got to deal with a lot of other dynamics. You got to make sure that the kids are going to do class or study hall. Uh, sometimes the administration will step in and want certain things. Uh, done a certain way. Obviously, alumni might step in and have a kid on the team that, you know, whose father is giving a certain amount of money. So you got to deal with all those type of dynamics. I just wanted to be able to focus on basketball for two or three hours a day. That's where I thought my my strength lied as a, a basketball coach. And um, so that's why I always, uh, even jumping into uh, coaching from the very beginning, I always focused on just going to the NBA route or professional route. Yeah, certainly. I think a lot more stress. I agree with you on the college level. People don't realize that. Uh, yeah. Again, so many things go into it, and it's not just coaching. It's almost as a head coach. Coaching is kind of the last thing that you do, right, in the college level these days. That's true. That's very true. There's a lot of things that you have to do. You got to speak at the Rotary Club. You got to get out on the on the uh, road and recruit uh, players in little small towns. You're sitting there with families trying to get their kid to come uh, commit to your school. Um, and, you know, again, there's a lot of things that goes into it other than just basketball coaching. And which I, which is, is nothing wrong with that. You know, obviously you can make a great career out of that. But I just felt like I know for me I'm, I function much better if I can just focus on the X's and O's every day uh, in order to get my team to succeed. Well, you're doing that now. You're back in uh, the state of Indiana. Tell us about uh, the team that you're coaching, what you're doing right now. So, uh, you know, I, I coached in Mexico last year up until October. They did a short season there because of COVID. I had some downtime in which I said, well, you know what, I want to utilize this time as a, uh, to get better as a coach myself. 
Uh, I've signed to go back to Indonesia in July. So I had a few months where I didn't have anything going on. So I reached out to a brand new team here. There's a league called the Basketball League, uh, TBL, uh, which is a like a double A minor league for uh, professional basketball players who want to play and then move up to maybe the G League or go overseas if they can. So uh, when this team was announced here in uh, Lebanon, Indiana, I said, well, the time, time frame wise, it works perfectly for me. I can come here from January until May and coach and then get ready to go back overseas. So I wanted to utilize this time as I tell players. You know, whenever you have some downtime, you want to take advantage of it in some form or fashion, stay in shape, work on your game, whatever. So this is perfect for me to be able to work on uh, continuing to coach. And then not only that, I can see different players in this league that I may want to consider taking overseas with me uh, come July. Being here in the States, how, how much do you watch the NBA game, the college game? And, and what do you think about it now? What do you think about, you know, the big guy in today's day is different than the big guy back in the eighties when you played, right? Yeah, it's definitely different. Uh, every, every so-called big guy thinks he's a guard now and wants to shoot jump shots. You know, um, it's rare that you can get a big guy that would just want to post up and, and do damage in the paint. Like we used to have to uh, back in the, in those days. But I honestly don't mind it as long as there's some balance there. I know for my teams, I try to have a little bit of both. I love the three ball just as much as, anybody else but i also love guys that attack the basket and still can we can still get some easy baskets uh with post-ups and things like that and that's that's important because you know when you make teams work harder when you get them in foul trouble more by putting more pressure on them offensively then that can help your team as well because they're going to be nice as you know mike where you're going to be hot from the three-point line and then there's going to be nights when you're cold from the three-point line and you got to have a plan b and c in order to counter that and so um, even though I am a fan of uh, three-point shooting, I still like the balance of having bigs or even guards sometimes post up and get in the paint as well. Well, again, we've talked a lot about your career. The first player ever to have your jersey retired in 2009. You were inducted into the Greater Wilmington Sports Hall of Fame as well for your time in Wilmington, what you've done beyond that as well. What, what kind of an honor was that for you as well? I thought that was uh, the biggest honor I've ever had, Mike. I thought maybe the Jersey retirement was the biggest thing. And then when that, that Hall of Fame thing came along, I started thinking about it. And I said, wow, this is uh, even a bigger honor because it's not just UNCW, it's that whole area. And uh, as you know very well, there's a lot of great athletes who have come from that area in all sports. And so for them to put my name among some of those I was truly humbled. I really was. And again, I always go back to my background, where I grew up from and where I came from when I first came to UNCW. And so uh, that was very humbling for me and a, a great honor. I was able to have Coach Gibson to come back and be one of my guests that, that particular day, along with two or three other friends from Wilmington and, and family members. So I was truly humbled by that. And every now and then, when I don't have anything to do, I might pop in the old video to to see that again because it's, it just means that much to me uh, now, especially as I get older, you know. So I'm truly humbled by that. And I haven't gotten a chance to get back to Wilmington. It's been years, and I haven't been to that uh, Greater Wilmington, Wilmington Hall of Fame yet, so I do want to get back and see all of those things. Yeah, we had another member, John Bunting, on previously here. And, uh, and again, check that out if you're watching this, Greater uh, Wilmington Sports Hall of Fame, because the names, this, this town, this city – you know, athletically, 
some great names. And someone not in there just yet is Michael Jordan. He'll eventually be in there. He's, he's got to be around here uh, for the ceremony. So, you know, it's a great Hall of Fame. It's something that he's not in, but but you are. And, and, and again, it is a, a great honor for you, certainly. Yeah, Mike. I know my good friend Kenny Gaddison went in uh, a few years ago. Uh, Gwen Austin, the, one of the top players ever at UNCW women program, she went in. Um, and so I, I'm truly humbled by that because uh, in my eyes, I, I don't deserve to be in there with those guys, but I'm, I'm so proud that UNCW and, and the whole Wilmington area thought enough of me to honor me that way. And uh, it's definitely an honor that I'll never forget and always cherish. Well, again, I think well-deserved. And and right now you're doing a lot of different things. You mentioned the coaching, but you also have uh, RousomSports.com doing mentoring. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and, and your goal of what you're trying to get through to, to kids coming up these days. Yeah, you know, Mike, again, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, whenever you talk to kids, everybody wants to play pro basketball, baseball, football, whatever. And that's great. And you should try those things. But I always let them know, too that there are other avenues in order to stay in sports. And uh, so I'm trying to get them to understand that you could be a great coach or a great scout or a general manager of, of a professional franchise if that's what you want to do. And actually, you can do that much longer than you can uh, than playing. Uh, in fact, one of my old players uh, who played for me uh, back here with the Brevard Blue Ducks back in 2006, he's now an NBA referee, Jonathan Sterling. And he just uh, reached out to me a couple of days ago and told me that he's going to be um, working the uh, NBA All-Star game coming up in Cleveland next week. So I'm so proud of him. You know, he was a decent player, but he found another way to stay in the game. And now he can referee for another 20 years easily. So um, that's what I want uh, young kids to understand is that there's other avenues in which you can work in in sports and, and have a long lasting career in that other than just playing, because even if you play, you might be lucky enough to do it for a handful of years and then you got to move on. Again, going back for a second to your days going up against David Robinson, obviously a big, you know, part of your career, your playing career. Had you guys kept in touch through the years, you know, because you were so com so competitive during your college days, how much did you interact with each other after that? Yeah, we, we haven't as much, uh, Mike, and, and, you know, because I live in uh, – in uh, Texas now, I want to do that uh, more. The, unfortunately, you know, with our, my schedule, I'm, I'm gone out of the country six, eight months out of the year. I did reach out to David a few years ago, and he responded to me, but I definitely want to try to get down to San Antonio at some point. I know he has an academy there where he, you know, uh, uh, does, um, I think, uh, I want to say the name of it is Carver Academy, if I'm not mistaken, but I know he does a lot for students there. Uh, with their schools and so forth uh, down in San Antonio. Of course, he's still doing things with the Spurs as well. Um, and I even followed his son who was playing uh, football at Notre Dame a few years ago. I'm a big Notre Dame football fan. So um, uh, I do want to reach out to the big fella. I would love to see him again. Last time I actually saw him in person, I was living in Maryland, uh, and I went to see him play against the Wizards, and we got a chance to catch up and talk at that time. That was right the, his last year before he retired. So I was able to see him during that last year. And then, of course, they went on and won the championship that year. So I would love to see him again because, the, you know, my name is synonymous with his, uh, Mike. Um, and so uh, I'm hoping that we can uh, definitely get together again. And as you know, uh, these days, a lot of people are passing on and so forth. So I tell 
not only, you know, uh, my friends, but I'm telling my UNCW teammates, we all got to get together at some point here pretty soon uh, because, um, you know, life is precious and we all need to get together and enjoy one another while we can. Uh, rather than, you know, getting together for someone's funeral, it will be nice to get together and have a nice, fun reunion. So all those things are very important now for sure. Yeah, do you ever think maybe you brought the notoriety to, to David Robinson? Maybe you helped him <laughs> you know, become a player that he was and become the Hall of Famer that he is. You know what, Mike? I probably did when he went down to Wilmington and blocked 14 of our shots and eight of them was mine. He set an NCAA record, so I probably did help Dave. Uh, become the number one draft pick. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Uh, before we wrap up, how active are you on social media? How can people follow you other than your website? Is there a way to keep up with you in your career? Yeah, Mike, I just got on social media about a year ago when I started doing, uh, I did a kids camp. Uh, so I'm on Instagram at Rousem Basketball Camp, and then I'm on Facebook at Brian Rousem. So uh, if anyone wants to reach out to me there, please do. I know a lot of UNCW people have reached out to me on Facebook already and IG, and uh, please, you do the same, Mike. I'll follow you guys, and anything I can do with you guys' program, uh, please let me know. I'm always honored. Well, this has been fun. Whether I'm tied to UNCW or not, this this was great to, to hear the stories and hear your career. And like you said, just a little old guy from a, a you know 1A school in North Carolina, but you've done pretty, uh, pretty good for yourself with that behind you. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm proud of the fact that I did come from a little small town, Mike. And, and I tell people all the time that it's amazing that Little Round basketball has taken me literally all over the world. And uh, I had no idea that it would do that. But if you use it the right way, you never know. You just never know. So I tell all the kids to follow their dreams for sure. Well, great catching up with you. And we'll certainly be following you as uh, your career continues as well. And, uh, again, can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here today, Brian. Thank you, Mike. Go Seahawks. <laughs> wow, what an episode there. Episode number 21 with Brian Rouse. Some great stories. We appreciate him joining us. Our thanks to him for his time here today. If you like that, our previous episodes as well, we remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. 21 episodes, great stories we've had so far. We'll have more great guests coming up. Do not miss those. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Again, that'll do it for episode number 21 with Brian Rousem. We appreciate you joining us. We'll see you next time in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.